Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace, and Happy New Year. It's good to see so many of you here. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to Luke chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 67 through 79. And as you're turning there, you may be wondering to yourself, wait a minute, I thought we were preaching through the book of Genesis. So why are we turning to Luke chapter 1? Well, if you were with us the last two weeks, you know that we spent time in the first chapter of Matthew. And if you were with us in the evening service on Christmas Day, we spent some time in Matthew 2. And what we saw there very clearly is that the gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit see the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, as the fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants, particularly those two covenants. And as we look at Luke's gospel, it's no different. And so we're going to see the same realities here as we look this morning at Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah's song. And then tonight, this evening, at the evening service at Living Grace, we'll look at Mary's song, the Magnificat, which is also found in Luke chapter 1. So hopefully that helps you understand why we're turning to Luke 1. And hopefully as I preach the sermon, it'll be abundantly clear the cohesion. It's like we're extending the Advent series out a little bit. Hopefully you're okay with that. So let me read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so let us attend to it as such and receive it from him as he has so graciously preserved it for us. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray that he would bless it to us. Lord God Almighty, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that your word is perfect and sure and right and pure and true and righteous altogether. Indeed, to us, it is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. And it is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so we pray now that your Spirit would use your word to revive our souls and make us wise and rejoice our hearts and enlighten our eyes so that together the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Well, it's that time of year again. That time of year where our culture seems to be obsessed with making New Year's resolutions. Things that they'd like to change in their lives. And so they make resolutions that most of the time, more often than not, they don't follow through on. And I don't know if you're going to be participating in that cultural practice But even in a congregation this size, full of believers, I'm going to venture a guess and say that that if you have made New Year's resolutions, I'm going to make a guess, and you can come correct me after the service if I'm wrong about this, that at the top of the list is not the resolution that your desire is to bless the Lord, praise the Lord, Have his person and work so filling your heart and mind that it just constantly is coming, spilling out of your mouth in 2023, more so than it did in 2022. And again, if anyone wants to come up after the service and say, I actually did make that New Year's resolution, I'd love to be corrected. But I don't think it's something that we think about. And whether or not you think New Year's resolutions are a good thing or not, The reality is, brothers and sisters, that that ought to be our aim. Our aim ought to be that with every passing year, we bless the Lord more and more. Because we've learned more about Him. We've more evidences of His faithfulness in keeping His promises to us. And so I think it's a wonderfully worthy goal to say, in this coming year, I want to praise the Lord more. I want my speech to be filled with thankfulness and gratitude to God. I want people around me to get annoyed by how much I'm talking about the goodness of God and His mercy and His loving kindness. Because what is the chief end of man after all, brothers and sisters? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the outflow of that is praise pouring forth from our lips. And here's the incredible thing. As we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79 this morning, we see that that's exactly what the Lord has done in the heart and life of Zechariah. He was a man who, we'll see as we recount his story, was given to unbelief, doubting God's promise. Praise didn't come out of his mouth, but doubt. But then God, through disciplining him and teaching him, And instructing him in the silence of Zechariah's own speech. 
The Lord changes Zechariah so that he's a man who praises and blesses God. And brothers and sisters, the Lord wants to use this passage to the exact same end this morning in our hearts and lives. And so what we're going to look at this morning is two reasons why we ought to bless God. We find in Zechariah's song and in his mouth two reasons ultimately why he praises God. And there are two reasons why we ought to praise God as well. As we start this new year, through the end of the year, and to the end of our lives on into eternity. First of all, we're going to look at how we ought to bless the Lord for how he has kept his promises in Jesus. Because that's what Zechariah says. Now that the Messiah is in the womb of this Virgin Mary, all the promises that God has made to his people are being fulfilled. They find their yes and amen. And so Zechariah praises God. We'll see that in verses 67 through 75. And then second of all, the second reason why we ought to bless and praise God is for how he has prepared the way for Jesus. We'll see that in verses 76 through 79. And ultimately, in this context, the way that God has prepared the way for Jesus is by the giving of John the Baptist to serve as the last Old Covenant prophet. But brothers and sisters, what we're also going to see as we look at that is that if we have eyes to see it, the Lord is preparing the way for Jesus' second coming even now. And so we ought to praise Him and thank Him for that. And so while this may seem like a daunting resolve, to resolve ourselves to praise the Lord more this year than we did last year, Here's the glorious good news, brothers and sisters. The Lord is going to do that in us by His grace, by His Spirit. And so let's see how He uses His Word now to that end. Let's look first then at how we ought to bless God for how He's fulfilled His promises in Jesus. Look at verse 67 with me. And His father, that being John, who we call the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... So we need to stop right there because there's some background here. There's some context that we're missing by jumping right into Zechariah's prophecy. And the background that Luke has already given us is that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are older believers. They're very faithful believers, but they're in their advanced years. They're beyond the years of childbearing, and they've always wanted a child, but they've never been able to have a child. And so they're praying and asking the Lord for this, and Zechariah, it's his turn to serve as high priest in the temple. And so he's there, and he's praying for the people, representing them before God, and then an angel appears to the the right of the altar, And tells Zechariah, you are going to have a child. Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And Zechariah, in unbelief, sinful unbelief, says, no, 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 that that can't be. I'm going to need some sort of sign. I can't just trust your word. Even though you're the messenger of God himself, I need something more to know that it's actually going to happen this way. And so the angel rebukes him and says, I am sent by God, and so by disbelieving my word, you've actually disbelieved the word of God himself. And so as discipline and punishment, you will lose your powers of speech. And so Zechariah does. He comes out of the temple. People are like, what happened? 
And so for the entire pregnancy of Elizabeth, Zechariah is not able to speak. And then the time comes, Luke tells us, when John is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that's when the name of the young child is revealed. And so they're asking Elizabeth, because John can't speak, what's his name going to be? And Elizabeth says his name is John. Now the relatives and the friends rebuke Elizabeth because they say, you don't have a relative by that name. Why are you going to name him John? So they turn to Zechariah, and Zechariah scribbles out, his name is John. And at that very moment, he regains his powers of speech. And look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 64 with me. Luke 1, 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing to God. And then he goes on to prophesy. The very first thing out of Zechariah's mouth is praise and blessing to God as the Spirit fills him with prophetic utterances to do so. And brothers and sisters, just in passing, very briefly, I don't want us to miss this, behold the fatherly care of God for his children. He disciplines us in our sin graciously, lovingly, kindly, right? If you don't discipline your children for their good, you don't actually love them. Well, we don't have that kind of heavenly father. We have a heavenly father who disciplines us. And sometimes it's severe, right? Losing your powers of speech for over nine months seems pretty severe. And yet in God's love and grace and kindness, the discipline has its effect, And the mouth which once opened in doubt and disbelief now opens in praise and thanksgiving and blessing to God. And the Lord does the exact same thing in our lives, brothers and sisters. And we ought to thank Him for that. But as Zechariah opens his mouth, what does he say? Look at verse 68 with me. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. What a glorious way to start this prophecy. That phrase there at the beginning of verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, is used again and again and again in the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at all of the references, but if you want to go check this later on, a great example of this is the Psalter, I'm sure you know, is broken up into five different books. And the first three books of the Psalter, each of those three, actually ends in this phrase. Blessed be the Lord. And so, Zechariah, knowing his Old Testament, because that's his Bible, pulls this phrase under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and blesses the Lord God of Israel because he's keeping his promises to his people. And how is he keeping his promise to his people? Well, look at the second half of verse 68. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, when you hear that language, your mind should immediately go back to the time of the Exodus. Because this is the exact same kind of language the Lord uses when the Israelites are under captivity to the Egyptians. And their cries are going up to the Lord. And what does the Lord say? He says, I'm going to visit you. He says that very clearly in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. I'm going to come visit you that I might judge your enemies. And free you from them. And redeem you. And so what Zechariah and what Luke are doing here. Is they're showing to us that now that the Messiah has come. 
there is going to be a new and greater exodus. Right? The Israelites, the Jews, looked back on the deliverance from the Egyptians as like the pinnacle of God's deliverance. And Zechariah is saying, a greater exodus has come because a greater deliverer than Moses has come. His own son, God's own son, has come in the flesh and visited us to redeem us from the tyranny, not of our physical enemies, the Egyptians, but of the flesh and the world and the devil. And so behold the wonderful redemption that he has brought. And so this is what's filling Zechariah's heart and mind. And what's so incredible about this visitation is make no bones about it. The Lord did visit his people through manifestations of his glory and through words of the prophets and the priests and the kings. But what Zechariah is saying is happening here is that God himself is coming in the flesh. He's drawing closer, as it were, than he ever has before to his people. As we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, that we might be redeemed by the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, assuming a human nature and doing everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God. And how has God visited and redeemed his people? Well, look at verse 69. God has done this by raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, a horn of salvation, what in the world could that possibly be? Well, I think Adults, the kids might get there faster than you on this one. Children, when you think about a horn, I'm assuming that you'll almost immediately think about various animals who have horns, right? And so maybe you think about a rhinoceros. Doesn't a rhinoceros have a big horn on the end of his nose or his head? It's actually attached to his skull, I believe. And when his enemies threaten him, He runs at them with full force, and all that force is concentrated on that one point of his horn. And if you get in the way of that horn, you are going to be destroyed. And we can think of other animals as well, maybe a bull, right, that has horns. Dairymen will cut those off so that they're flat, so they're not quite as dangerous. But a horn carries this idea of power or might. But a horn also carries with it this idea, symbolically throughout Scripture, of representing kings. So you can think about Daniel chapter 7, or Daniel chapter 8, or the book of Revelation. Horns symbolically represent kings in those apocalyptic literary uses. And so what we're being told here is that a mighty king is going to be raised up. And where is that mighty king going to be raised up from? Zechariah tells us, from the house of David. So what is Zechariah seeing happening here? What is he prophesying? That God is now keeping his promise to David. And what was that promise to David? Well, you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 13 to you in just a minute, but you remember David wanted to build God a house. Kind of cute, isn't it? Build God a house. What can you build that would contain God? And that's actually God's response in part, by the way. Nothing can contain me. But it wasn't David's place to build God a house. He had too much blood on his hands. 
But do you remember what God says in turn to David? In turn, here's what the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 13. This is the Davidic covenant. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, it's very kind of you that you want to make me a house, but you're not fit to do that. I'm going to make you a house. Now, what does the Lord mean by that? Listen to verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so when you've died, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what the Lord promised to David in the Davidic covenant is, there's going to be an offspring that comes from your line who will assume the throne and he will rule and reign forever and ever. His kingdom will know no end. And so this is what Israel's waiting for. Israel's waiting. Israel's crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that lays in lonely exile here. Come, redeem us. And they're expecting this king to arise. And what Zechariah is saying, is that one is here. He's come. He's the infant in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God has kept His promise. And so, that's why Jesus says what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He brings that kingdom in part now and in its fullness when He comes again. But Zechariah is saying historically, The promise is fulfilled in the birth of this child. Zechariah goes on to prophesy in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Zechariah is saying, we've known this was coming because all the prophets spoke about this. And I think the use of the language here is fascinating. Notice the use of the word mouth is singular. It's not the mouths of his holy prophets, although they had different mouths. So what's he getting at here? The Lord spoke through various prophets, but it's as if they speak with one mouth. Why? Because at the end of the day, though the Lord used various different mouthpieces, God himself is the speaker. And since there is ultimately one messenger, there's ultimately one message. And what has that message been again and again and again? It's about Christ. It's about the Messiah. It's about the one who would come and fulfill the promise of David. And so he's saying all of those promises that we've looked forward to, that have testified to the coming of the Son, the promise as it was passed down from God Himself in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and then to Seth and then to Noah and then to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah and then to David and then down through the prophets. They have all found their yes and their amen in the coming of this one who is in the womb of Mary. And what will this mighty, promised Davidic king bring about? Well, look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
Now, this promise comes up again and again and again all throughout the Old Testament. But you see, the Jews of Jesus' day, when he showed up, they completely misunderstood what this was all about. Because they thought the deliverance from their enemies politically and economically and as far as the government was going to happen when he showed up. They didn't think that there was going to be an inauguration of the kingdom at his first coming. And then a consummation when he would destroy all of his enemies at the second coming. They saw them as one and the same. And so they're thinking, Jesus, you're going to be a political leader. You're going to be a military leader. You're going to restore us to our former glory politically and economically. Now again, make no bones about it, brothers and sisters. Jesus is going to do that when he comes back the second time. Revelation eleven fifteen will be fulfilled when the kingdoms of this world, the city of man, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and then he will reign forever and ever. But that's not what he came to do the first time. What did he come to do in his first advent? He came, we remember from Matthew 1, 21. He's called Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves because he's come to save his people from their sins. That's why he tells Pilate when he's on trial, Jesus does, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my disciples would take up arms and we would crush you. But that's not what I've come to do. No, I've come to deliver you from the flesh and the world and the devil. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know, those enemies hate us as God's people. And so when you're tempted to play around with sin, well, I'm just going to, this can't hurt at all. You've got to understand, they are your enemies and they want your soul and they want to destroy you. The flesh, the world, and the devil aren't playing games. They want to destroy you because they hate us. And yet the good news of the Messiah's arrival is that he has delivered us from our enemies. And when he comes again, he will completely, fully, and finally crush the city of man and the city of God will reign forever and ever. Now, Zechariah doesn't just leave it there for us. He also tells us why God is keeping all of his promises in Jesus. Why has God done this? We'll look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, all of those promises of mercy that God extended to David and to all our fathers according to the faith, they never saw the fulfillment of that. And yet now, Zechariah is saying, that time has come. God has promised this mercy. And now this mercy has come. And so what we're seeing is that he is remembering his holy covenant. God doesn't forget his promises. He keeps them. And so what covenant specifically does Zechariah have in mind here? Well, it's the covenant that any Jew would have in mind. And we see that in verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, and I'm just going to stop right there because I'm going to take verses 74 and 75 with the tail end of 73. But what is Zechariah talking about? Which covenant? It's the covenant that God entered into with Abraham. God is fulfilling that promise. What was that promise that God made to Abraham? He said, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know, and I'm going to give it to you. 
And, and come outside. You see the stars in the sky? Go ahead and try and count them. With the little children's story Bibles, I always tell my kids, try to count all the stars, and they start, and they eventually give up. And that's not nearly as many stars as are actually in the sky. And so the Lord promises land and numerous offspring, and that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, the Lord's promising, I'm going to reverse the curse. I promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your reward. I will be your shield. And yet the incredible thing is that God doesn't just promise all these things to Abraham. You remember that he swore an oath to Abraham. Now, why did God swear an oath to Abraham? Did God need to make sure like, well, I don't know if I'm going to keep my promise. I don't know if I'm going to keep my covenant. So you know what? I'm really going to bind myself with an oath. No, he didn't do that. God didn't do that for himself. God did that for Abraham in the weakness of his faith to assure him, right? Because God promises, swears this oath right after Abraham's willing to actually offer Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And we learn in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, that he swore by himself. Why did God swear by himself? Because he had no one greater by whom he could swear. No one's greater than God. So God swears by himself. And what we're being shown here is that in the coming of the Son of God, taking on human flesh, taking on a human nature, assuming it, he is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. God is keeping his covenant to Abraham. Now, Zechariah then moves on to the benefits that are ours since God has kept this covenant. So look at verse 73 again with me through to verse 75. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The first thing I want you to notice there is the fact that it's been granted to us. To grant to us. This is not something that we earned. It certainly wasn't something that Abraham earned. He wasn't out looking for God. God sought him out. And brothers and sisters, we know we weren't looking for the grace of God. He sought us. And so it's this reality that there's this gift that God has lovingly and graciously given to us. And what is being granted to us? Well, again, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And so we're not just freed from our enemies, we're then freed to serve God. And hearing that should remind you of, again, the Exodus. The Exodus language is just shot through this prophecy. But why does the Lord say, through the mouth of Moses to his people and to Pharaoh, I'm going to deliver you from the Egyptians? It's not just so you can be free from their tyranny and their cruelty. It's so that you will then be free to serve me. You see, God doesn't just deliver us from our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil so that we can just do whatever we want with our lives and not have to worry about hell. No, that's not freedom. Freedom is not having no master, it's having God as your master. A loving, gracious, merciful father who you desire 
to serve. Because brothers and sisters, that's what we were created for. And that's been granted to us without fear. Why are we able to do this without fear? Because we don't have the threatenings of the law bearing down on us. All the ways that we fail to obey God's law. And we don't have the fear of God's wrath bearing down on us for all the sins that we've committed. Why? Because Jesus has all of that imputed to him on the cross and he pays that penalty in full. And we also don't have to not just fear God, we don't have to fear our enemies either. Why? Because they have been defeated ultimately. And so what can they do for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we're able to serve him in righteousness and holiness. Why? First of all, because we've been justified not on our holiness and righteousness, but on Christ's that's been imputed to us. And then by his Holy Spirit, he sanctifies us. And as we fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are conformed more and more in our character to his image. But brothers and sisters, that drives us to what the ultimate blessing actually is. And do you know what that ultimate blessing is in all of this? In the promises that God has made to his people being fulfilled in Jesus, the ultimate blessing and benefit is right there at the tail end of verse 75. That we are before him. We are in his presence. We have communion and fellowship with him. Again, that's what we were created for. That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden and then lost when they disobeyed him and they were driven out of the garden. And what God has been doing throughout salvation history is progressively unveiling and revealing how he is going to visit us to what end that we might be before him. Now I want to show you something amazing to highlight that this is in fact the very message of Zechariah's prophecy. And there's a literary device used here that if you've been to Sovereign Grace before you're aware of. It's called an inclusio. We love inclusios here at Sovereign Grace. And I think we love them because they're all over the place in Scripture once you have eyes to actually see them. And if you've not heard what an inclusio is, because you've not been with us before, an inclusio is like bookends in a section of literature that sort of serves to show you what it's all about. And so you'll have a front bookend and a back bookend. So let me show you the front bookend in verse 68. Go back to verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel... For he has visited. That Greek word there, visited, is the root of it is the word we use for bishop. One who attends very carefully and attends to the needs of one whose care has been entrusted to them. And so that word is used there in verse 68, visited. And then you'll see it again in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Same Greek root. And so the whole point is, God has come and visited us. Himself. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has come to visit us. To what end? Well, what's smack in the middle of that inclusio is verse 75. That we would serve Him before Him all our days. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to rejoice in this incredible reality that because the Son 
has come and visited us. Our fellowship and communion is with Him and is with the Father in a way that was not the case for the saints under the old covenant. And so the question then is for us is, do we revel in these benefits that are ours as new covenant believers? Do we, no matter what's going on in our lives, fall back on this, that God has visited us in His Son, keeping all of His promises, and so we ought to rejoice at the benefits that are ours because of that reality? Because, brothers and sisters, we ought to. And again, here's the incredible reality. God is, by His grace, going to do this in us. He is going to make us grateful and thankful and fill our mouths with praise and thanks to Him for the reality that all of His promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we're able to serve Him without fear. We're able to serve Him in holy safety, knowing that we are accepted for Jesus' sake, and in Him and by His Spirit, we truly grow in righteousness and holiness, looking more and more like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because as we behold their glory from one degree of glory to the next, we're transformed as we commune and fellowship with Him. And the incredible thing is how long Are we going to do that, not just in this life, but on into eternity? Because again, look at the tail end of verse 75. We'll be before him all our days, forever. And so brothers and sisters, we ought to always have a song in our heart and in our mouths ready to bless and praise the Lord because he has kept all of his promises in Jesus. But that's not the only reason we ought to bless him. Secondly, and this will go faster, We ought to bless God, we see from this text, for how he's prepared the way for Jesus. The way he's prepared the way for Jesus. And we see that in verses 76 through 79. Let's begin by looking at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So, I don't want us to forget the humanity here of Zechariah, okay? Because you can imagine, here's a guy that his entire married life has been longing to have a child. And now he has a son. And he's given his powers of speech back. And I don't know about you, but I put myself in Zechariah's shoes and I'm thinking, the first words out of my mouth are going to be, Honey, Elizabeth, we've got a son! We've got a child. We've waited so long for him. Look at, look at him. My goodness. How incredible. And yet, now there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I guarantee you that that was one of the feelings and emotions and experiences they had. But I want you to notice that it's in its proper place. It's trumped by Zechariah blessing the Lord and thanking him for keeping his promise. And even as he thinks about his newborn son who's about to be circumcised and dedicated to the Lord, even as he thinks about his son, he's only thinking about him ultimately in relation to how he will prepare the way for the Messiah who has come. Do you see the radical work of sanctification that the Lord has done in Zechariah's heart? I mean, it's breathtaking. 
And we ought to be thankful that the Lord does that in our hearts and lives as well. And I can't help but think that Zechariah continued this example before John his entire life. And John caught that example, didn't he? Because what does he say about himself in relation to his ministry as opposed to Jesus' ministry? He says in John chapter 3 verse 30 that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so we see that in Zechariah here. Now, what role is John going to play? He's going to play a preparatory role. You see that. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the last prophet of the Old Covenant. And you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Now, that language is interesting there because in the ancient world, they had a practice when a king was visiting a town or a city. And that practice was that servants would be sent out to go tidy up the road. Because the last thing you want is the king coming on his chariot or whatever. And, you know, there's potholes and maybe he's, you know, bouncing all over the place. That doesn't set a very good first impression. So these servants are sent out to make straight the way for the king. To make the rough places plain, lower the high parts, raise the low parts. And so that's the role, Zechariah says, as he's prophesying here, that John is going to play. Now, what does that actually look like? Well, one of the things that John is going to do is he's going to try to set the record straight, although we see John struggling with that himself in his own understanding. He's going to make sure that folks understand what Jesus has come to do and what he hasn't come to do. Because again, he hasn't come the first time to deliver them from the Romans, from the city of man and its oppression. That's not ultimately why he's come this first time. He's come that they might be reconciled to God. And so John, when he sees Jesus, says what? Behold the Lamb of God who delivers you from the terrible Romans. No. Who takes away the sins of the world. And so John's to highlight for them what is their greatest need. It's for their sins to be forgiven and for them to be reconciled to God. That the debts they owe God for their sin would be forgiven. And why does Jesus come to do all this? Well, Zechariah says in verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. We already heard mention of God's mercy, promised to the fathers, now fulfilled in the Messiah. Here we have a beautiful picture of God's mercy. That word there, tender, it's literally like gut mercy, bowel mercy. You go, oh, that's not a very, ugh, why would you bring that up? Just let us figure that out on our own. Well, the reason for that kind of language, now let's not misunderstand. God doesn't have a gut, a stomach, bowels, and God doesn't have feelings, okay? What's being communicated to us is a human experience that we have that gives us a little insight into God's incredible mercy. And so if you're a parent here, you know what Zachariah is talking about. There's this love that you have for your kids. You want for them so badly good And that they would not experience evil or wickedness. That it's visceral, isn't it? You can feel it in your stomach. Your heart sinks when you hear that something bad happens to them. And you feel like you're on top of the world when something good happens to them. 
And so what Zechariah is saying is because of the mercy that God has for you, he has prepared the way for this one. And what is this one going to come and do? We'll look at the tail end of verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Who is the sunrise from on high? It's the sun who, like the beams of the sun's light, radiate from the sun, so the Son eternally proceeds and is generated from the Father. And the Father, in His tender mercy, sends the Son to deliver His people. That's why the sons come to visit us. And it's such a beautiful picture, this sunrise, because Zechariah gives us an incredibly stark picture of fallen humanity. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the word picture here? Zechariah is saying fallen humanity is like a caravan of pilgrims on a journey in a desert in the ancient world. And they're stuck in a storm and it's pitch black. You ever been that pitch black where you can't see your hand in front of your face? And so they don't know where to go. And the wind's howling and they're hunkered down with their families and there's bandits about and poor weather and it's cold and there's predators, animals about that would just as soon eat you as anything else. And you're wondering, man, are we going to make it through the night? And then what happens? That first ray of dawn's light shoots across that night sky and your heart leaps for joy and you're able to see where you're supposed to walk, your footsteps, as I've spilled these papers all over the floor up here. You know where you're supposed to walk. And Zechariah says this is the plight of fallen humanity. As they're under the wrath of God, as they are enemies of God, they're in the darkness of ignorance and unbelief. Don't we see that in our culture? Don't know left from right, up from down, man from woman. Because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But when the Father sends the Son, the light of the world shines in the darkness. And those whom the Father has given to the Son see the light. And they don't just see the truth, but they actually walk towards it. Because notice the end there of verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Who is the way of peace? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to peace with the Father. You cannot establish peace with God through your own works by what you do or don't do. It's only by what Jesus has done, what the Father has sent the Son to do for us. He is the only way of peace. And here's the incredible thing. He doesn't just show us that, but he guides our feet so that we walk in that way. He gives us the gift of faith, having regenerated us by the Holy Spirit so that we believe in Jesus, that he is the only way of peace with God so that we then actually do have peace with God. So do you see, brothers and sisters, how incredible These realities are. And here's the thing. I want to go back to the reality of Zechariah not ultimately rejoicing in what this means for him and his little family. He's not rejoicing in his little kingdom. He's rejoicing in God's kingdom. 
and the role that his son plays in that kingdom, preparing the way for the coming king. And so it should challenge us as we look at the year ahead. Does your year look like it's filled with joy? Good things coming down the pike? Do you look at the year ahead and think, man, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of loss? That's what it looks like based on how my circumstances are playing out? Well, brothers and sisters, however 2023 is looking like it's going to shape up for you, for good or for ill, we have reason to praise God and bless Him because He's kept all His promises in His Son. And here's the thing, if He's kept that greatest of all promises, we can trust that He's going to keep the smaller ones, like keeping you and me in the faith, like never leaving us or forsaking us, that He's going to sanctify us, that He's going to cause us to persevere through want or through plenty. And so our mouths should be filled with thankfulness that God has kept His promises in Jesus and He will continue to keep His promises in Jesus to you and to me. And so rejoice not and despair not in your circumstances. But rejoice in the Lord and praise Him. Because what do we know? We know that the Son's coming back again. He's promised that. And if we have eyes to see, we can see that ever since Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, the Father's been preparing the way for the Son's return throughout history. And so we should rejoice in that. He's kept His promises then. He's going to keep them now. And what will happen on that day? The little foretastes of fellowship and communion with God that we experience right now, we will experience perfectly for all eternity without any hindrance, whether that be our own flesh or the world or the devil. Every enemy will be crushed in the dust by Christ when He comes again. And then we will worship Him forever endeavor. So brothers and sisters, until that day comes, we have every reason in the world to praise and bless our Lord. And so by his grace and by his spirit, may he make us such people and such a church. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that in your Son you have visited us He's taken on flesh. He's subjected himself to the law and fulfilled it. He paid the penalty on the cross that we owed you for our sins. Rose from the dead, ascended to your hand, sent the Holy Spirit, and he's coming back again. And so, Father, in light of these realities, in light of Jesus' first coming that's already happened and his soon second coming, may our hearts be filled with praise and thanks for who you are, O Lord and what you've done. And may we rejoice in the fellowship that is ours because we're able to serve you and commune with you without fear in righteousness and holiness all our days. And as you leave us here, may we open our mouths and declare the good news of your Son to unbelievers all around us here in Bakersfield and ultimately to the farthest ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.